our guest today is a, a second time guest on Turf Tuesdays, uh, Dr. Jeff Marvin with PBI Gordon. Um, Jeff, I've known you for a long time. We, I think we met back in like 2013, 2014, but most of the people that are listening probably are unfamiliar with you if they're new to Turf Tuesdays. So welcome, number one. And to start, why don't you tell the folks that are with us who you are and what you do with PBI Gordon and what they're all about? Yeah, thanks, Jim. So uh, as you said, Jeff Marvin, I, I lead our product development team here at PBI Gordon. So within that, we've got now four researchers uh, throughout the United States. Our, our most recent hire, Dr. Seegers out in Bend, Oregon, Dr. Nardi in State College, Pennsylvania, Eric Razor down in Dallas, Texas, and, and Crystal Linkson up in uh, Ohio. So great team of researchers. Uh, I get the uh, privilege of of working with them, but we take a look at all the new stuff coming to PBI Gordon. Um, so you've seen some of the new things here this year and previous years, but uh, obviously work closely with the, the likes of you and uh, Dr. Horvath, you know, looking at, at new AIs, new formulations, um, a lot of great work at, at Tennessee and, and some other locations. I've been with PBI Gordon now just over 12 years uh, in this role or a couple of different roles within the in the company, but all R and D focused. And you guys are you guys have really grown. I mean, I know I started at Tennessee, and gosh, now like 13, 14 years ago, now two thousand eight ish, and and you know, PBI Gordon was always around. You know, TriMet Classic has been a thing since I was a little kid. Um, but uh, you know, your footprint in the industry has really grown, and you know, you guys have really put a lot of work into product development, and have had some new new tools come into the industry that have been success stories. Um, yeah, any, any of those come to mind as a, a real highlight for you? I know when we first met, I think it's when you first got access to the active Invexus, like the, the paperwork was just signed and you were happy to talk about it. Yeah, no, it's Jim. So my, my first interaction with, with Primi Solfan and Vexus started in 2011 internally as a, the research station manager, uh, what, two years later, I, I oversee our, our field group. And, and that's really where I think you and I first truly met. I, I know we probably crossed paths at some of the national conferences, but my, my first interactions of, of visiting Tennessee and placing work, 2013-ish, uh, give or take. Um, but yeah, so we we launched Vexus Premium Soft in late 2018. And then, uh, you know, here recently with the liquid variation of that, Archon, but our, our operating goal, right, is uh, outpace the market. And as you said, I think we've seen some really nice growth over the last uh, three, four, five years. We've had a much more focused approach to how we go to market, trying to bring tailored solutions to our end users, whether that's LCO, golf, sports fields, things like that. We're trying to take a new look at, at what we bring to market. And what's implied but not stated there is that there's something in the market to buy, right? And that's kind of what we're what we're uh, we're going to touch on today. Um, you know, you were kind enough to come to the turf conference in Tennessee back in January. We had a supply chain roundtable because that was uh, an issue that was first and foremost in a lot of folks' mind, and I think probably still is. I mean, I, I my sense is it's better, but maybe not what it was pre-COVID. I mean, I, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, I mean. So you rewind to, to January, and 
and we're on stage talking about I, I couldn't source bottle caps. I, I couldn't source labels just to try to put a product in the market. Um, you know, knock on wood, I think right now, especially the last six months, um, that, that supply chain is, at least from PBI Gordon's perspective, has definitely righted itself. Um, we don't have the, the materials issues that we had from a, a bottle, a cap, a label. Um, Recall, I think in January, I was speaking to MCPP, you know, supply. There was some issues there where it was very tight. Um, I think that's finally kind of corrected itself somewhere around that, that May, June timeframe this year, where everything kind of fell into place. Um, the original manufacturer of MCPP got up and running. Some additional supply came online. So I, I think as an industry, when you look at that three-way type herbicide, so obviously when you look at PBI Gordon, the Trimate 992, the Trimate Classic, um, you know, back into a position where, again, we want to be a reliable supplier and have supply on hand that we can ship when needed by our distribution partners. So yeah, you go back eight, nine months ago, labels, bottle caps, the jug, all of that was a problem. You know, right now, I think from, from my perspective and in our company, a lot of that's been righted. You know, MCPP, as we talked about back in January, it was going to be tight early on. We're, we're now in a good position when you look at those three-way herbicides. But even your your premium branded herbicides, Speed Zone, T Zone, things like that, that MCPP is in. Um, you know, we have a good source. Uh, there's additional sources that have now come online from that part. So, industry-wide, I think we're in a good place. Uh, yeah, and maybe maybe give the folks listening some perspective, you know, on you know, we have a lot of lawn care folks that listen, a lot of a lot of extension agents that are that are listening and are familiar with the products. You know, how does something like three-way that you are or nine nine two, let's call it, um how does that get to the shelf? You know, you you you've talked about you know, sourcing MCPP, right? And I don't know that everyone that's listening to us kind of understands that. You may see a jug on a shelf that says PBI Gordon Trimec 992, but you're not really making the 992, like you're not creating the 24D per se or synthesizing the chemistry for MCPP. Can you, you know, shine some light on what goes in to get a product into a two and a half gallon jug on the shelf? Yeah, Jim, so that's that's a great question, right? I mean, when you look at 992, you look at the number of supply channels that go into a product like that, right? You've got to, one, have the container to put it in, the label to put on it. Then you have the actives, all the formulas that go in there. You're, you're probably easily talking an interaction of 10 plus supply partners that you hope all of those supply partners are in lockstep. When, when we ask or we have demand for a product that, that they're able to supply, uh, and like I said, you go back, you know, he's even nine months ago, but COVID, that definitely was not the case. Um, you know, so we, we bring in MCPP, G4D, Dicamba from different supply partners. You have the logistics of a lot of that's international. So you're looking at shipping product over water, which is longer than I would have anticipated, right? You're talking weeks um, to ship a product over water. It's going to come into a major port where potentially it sits for another couple of weeks going through the customs process. You know, so that's where when you talk about supply, I mean, we, we rely on our distribution partners and the forecast of, okay, we know when you're going to 
when your call for demand is, so that we know we're placing the orders downstream at the right time and we're expecting material on the time. Um, it's, it's the ever, never ending dance, um, you know, with supply partners trying to arrange transit. You know, I know we've had some issues, I think, where we've heard, you know, a couple of supply partners to say, you know, arranging that overwater transit. Um, one company may say it's, it's an eight week process, another company may say it's a four week process. They're trying to find that right, that right partner. Um, on there, it's it's a uh, it's unique. And like I said back in January, Jim, I mean, I, I've learned more about supply chain than I ever wished I would have uh, going through this process. But I, I tell you, it's, it's it's been an interesting ride. Any uh, any sense of like, you know, you, you have a lot of liquid products in your portfolio. Any 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 better with granular products in terms of getting through supply chain worse with a granular product going through supply chain or kind of no different? Uh, I wouldn't say it's any better or any worse. Uh, you know, from the standpoint now, when I look at Mr. Bexis, you know, when you look at that carrier, um, right now we're not forecasting or seeing any, any supply chain issues. I, I would say you're on the supply side six, nine months ago from a price point, it was more on the fertility side where you're seeing some of that that pinch. Um, that's not where PBI Gordon plays. You know, we're, we're not into that fertility market. So we, we didn't feel that pressure near as much. You know, when you look at what's on a Vexus, we're, we're all the inert carrier, um, it's a, a corn frill or clay type carrier. And, and right now that's been pretty consistent. And, Probably even during COVID was maybe a little more consistent than some of the liquid front. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting too, like how every industry felt it, you know, ag chem felt it. But, you know, you look at like the, you know, the steel in our business, mowing equipment wise, they felt it. They might have felt it worse and are probably still dealing with some of the lingering effects of that in terms of. There's so many parts that go into a mower, and if one of those parts isn't there, that mower's not going forward. It's it's, I don't know, so that like you said, it's definitely something there's a new appreciation for. I think for everybody who does this. Yeah. So what I think what our our end users and our distribution you know, don't see right during the the midst of COVID, PBI is undertaking a thirty million dollar renovation of one of our plants. We're trying to do this renovation. And Jim, as you just said out, when you look at parts, you look at product materials that go into a renovation, um, I, I know, I think our team has, has felt that that issue as well. And again, finally, you kind of seen that light at the end of the tunnel now where uh, building materials, uh, you know, on demand and supply when needed. You're also seeing some of that cost come down. I know, you know, talking to a neighbor of mine that's in construction and, you know, he's, he's been a product or a float for a project and you know it's, it's good for 30 to 60 days because that material is changing ever so quickly um, in price point so I, I know we felt that pressure internally during our renovation as well yeah for sure you know and you bring up pricing and that's that's a good segue I and mean, we last year in september for turf tuesday we we focused on eop and the rationale in that was a lot of folks who join us might not be familiar with EOPs and what they are and what they do did 
you know, moving forward from that, did the supply chain hurdles that you felt affect your your EOP program at PBI Gordon? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's you know it's interesting, right? When we look at rewind the clock, you know, nine months, twelve months, and we were looking at the price of, of raw materials coming in, and uh, use a term that we we use, you know, our, our finance group purchase price variance uh, on the books. Let's say two four D, we had it priced at X when it was in short supply, it's difficult to come by, you know, it was X plus 100%, X plus 200%. Um, there were some increases that you just can't forecast. I mean, there was no way to forecast a, a 200% increase. I think the the highest increase or percentage increase that we've seen was maybe a 400, 500% increase on some of our co-formulants. Um, so one's no way to forecast it. You know, so you look back a year ago, PBI Gordon took the stance of we're not going to change price in season. That's difficult, right? For an end user, you go into a season with a budget for distribution, you go into a season with a budget. Um, we held firm on, on price. And then finally, you know, coming into you know last year's EOP, a fairly significant price increase, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, probably sent some shockwaves through the industry a little bit on wow, this is a, this is a fairly large increase. Whereas it was a single increase where some of our competitors were looking at, you know, two or three in-season price increases. So some differences in strategy there between us and, and our, our competitors. Uh, coming out of that, I think this year EOP, we recognize, hey, we, we need to change some things. And I know our, what we're calling our green dividends, so part of the EOP, I think you're going to see some really strong offers on some of our key products. When you look at the zone products, feed zone, T zone, uh, the fungicide lineup from Segway, Kabuto, the tech, and things like that, we're going to make some really strong offers to kind of get back to where, again, price to value. We hope we're supplying our, our end users with a product that provides value, but at a price that's, that meets what they need to do. Do you, and this is a little speculative, but do you sense greater participation in EOP programs now that prices have gone up industry-wide? I mean, you know, Brandon and I have been privy to some pricing information and it's been, it's been pretty eye-opening to see what some, what some products cost these days. Um, and, you know, I, I'd just be interested to know from, from your side of the, the industry, do you think there's more participation in EOP now than there was maybe three years ago? Uh, I would say yes. I think it's a, a incremental increase year over mm -hmm. year uh, on participation. Um, when you look at the total incentives baked in, and I'm looking at our program, um, when you can save $10 and $15 a gallon on a, on a product, I mean, that's or on a skew, that's, that's big. No doubt. So yeah, I think you're going to see that continued drive uh, on EOP. Um, you know, I know for an end user, it probably puts them in a tough spot because you're you're trying to forecast the weather, right? I mean, you're saying, do I need do I need to bring in all of this fungicide, or do I need to bring in all of this, you know, herbicide, and not knowing what what weather patterns you're going to see here coming in in 2024. So I know it puts some some pressure on them, um, but I I don't see 
the EOP process going away when you look at the sheer savings potential that you can achieve? Well, we talked about this with the, with the group last year. Just to reiterate, I mean, I think the golf industry is very familiar with this. Um, but when I look at like the, the lawn care industry, for example, well, I don't know how much participation there is in lawn care uh, compared to golf or EOP. And the nature of the lawn care business sets up that one could really make a lot of use of this. I mean, if you're managing a lawn care outfit and you know you have X number of properties and every year you're going to make, you know, four to six or seven rounds, depending on what part of the country you're in. And you kind of know, at least conceptually, what you're doing in each one of those rounds in terms of what your targets are and what you're going to, your goal is in going there. But you kind of have a feel for what your overall product need is going to be, right? And, you know, if you're buying a, a pre-emergent herbicide, for 250 properties and you know how much you need well you can there's a substantial savings if you buy it all in eop and you do it early yeah no doubt jimmy that yeah it's a unique scenario and i for the listeners out there i'd be curious what they what their take on it is when you look at lawn care you kind of go into those winter months from my perspective or understanding there's also some of that uncertainty of those winter months on you look at customer retention and client retention and do I want to have this big spend, you know, October, November, December, not maybe fully understanding what that retention looks like mm -hmm. March, April. It, it's a unique dilemma uh, for sure for that, for that LCO front. And I'd be curious what some of the listeners would, you know, what their thoughts are on that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you guys have anything in EOP right now, I know you mentioned your green dividends program, and I know on the herbicide side, you're launching Archon as um, a liquid formulation of Vexus. Um, do you have anything that you're super excited about EOP for this year that you're just curious to see where it lands? Yeah, so all you hit on, I mean, Archon for sure, right? I mean, that's been a two, three years now in the making, um, trying to bring out a, a liquid version of Bernie Sawfan knowing that that liquid version is probably a little more or easier to use for a professional. Right? When you look at LCO, when you look at golf course, you know, I think they'd rather use a, a liquid version versus the, the granular. Granular has its fit for sure, but um, definitely looking forward to that, that Archon side of it. The ease of use, um, one, just your, I think, reliability when you look at that liquid versus the granular. You're not as relying on soil moisture in there. Um, you know, we had to claim that you have the granular, you had to water it in within 24, 48 hours. So with this liquid, you're definitely getting some foliar uptake and activity on that. But overall, like I said, I mean, our, I think PBI Gordon is making a big swing here from a, just a total incentive, total rebate. And you look at our entire portfolio. Yeah, I'm really excited to see where kind of October, September, October take us on that front. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, and on the Archon front, I think one of the things that stands out to me with it, having worked with it for a few years, is, you know, the fact that it's going to be labeled on greens and it's safe on greens. There's very, very few products that hit the market today with use directions for putting greens. You know, there's there's a lot with a do not use on greens and there's some labeling by omission where greens are just not labeled and not mentioned. Um, but the fact that it's specifically labeled for greens use, I think is pretty significant. 
No, Jim, I mean, you kind of hit on to, we just had an internal training on an archon with our sales group and a couple of sales reps were asking that same question of, okay, if you have Palanga or Sedge on a collar of a green, can you spray right up beside it? And, you know, absolutely. We showed a couple of photos where, when you look at this plastic chemistry, right, that ALS chemistry, can it move potentially? Sure. Uh, but what I was telling our sales group is even if it moves, like you said, you're, you're labeled on greens. If you spray on a, a perimeter that's on a slope and you get some movement into the green, uh, not concerned at all from a, from an injury standpoint. So it is. I think it's a, a really nice tool. Yeah, for sure. So you know, going going back supply chain wise, you know, this might be a hard question to answer, but. What's the weirdest thing that there was a shortage of? The weirdest thing that there was a shortage of. Um, I mean, I'd probably go back. I mean, just like I said, you pick source of we're we're ordering bottle caps at a couple dozen at a time. We we call your a local janitor supply company and say, you have this bottle cap, and we buy. If they had two dozen of them, we'd buy two dozen of them. Uh, <laughs> that's, hey, that's one of the oddest. Um, I don't a little know. different than train cars, right? Yeah, you just you don't think of a bottle cap kind of holding up the process. You just you, you take for granted. I mean, you walk into a grocery store, the peanut butter is always in that in that plastic container. It's it's not an issue, right? It's, uh, no, that, that had to have been the biggest issue. When you look at the, the raw materials, the, the active ingredients, I think we all anticipated some of that. Um, but now I, use, I don't think you could foresee the, the bottle cap, the label, finding a print press that was running and you could have time on the line to print a label for you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned earlier about shipping too. Um, give the the listeners a sense of, you know, a lot of the actives that you're sourcing, you're sourcing from Asia. Um, they ship them through California. I know there was a period where maybe a year ago it was actually more economically feasible and you could get the materials to yourself faster not shipping to California, shipping through the Panama Canal and coming into like Savannah. Is that still the case? Yeah, no. So there was a huge, yeah, bottleneck when you looked at California. I think you had freight containers that were, I want to say easily month, two months. So, you know, container arrived in California and you were a couple of months before it even made its way to customs from a, a labor perspective of not having uh, labor power to move those. Um, I know in the midst of COVID, we, we made the decision, we air freighted product into Chicago, places like that, to try to speed things up. Uh, absolutely. I think the East Coast ports didn't feel that same burden uh, that some of the West Coast ports did. But even there, you know, coming into Florida of Baltimore, I know there were some delays and we tried to, to bring product in when we looked at uh, MC, MCPP supply coming out of Europe. You know, delays on that front as well come into, into some of those ports. And that's one of the things that, yeah, I think most of our, our end users and customers don't really hear, but you know, when you look at MCPP, you know, we were making the decision to, to air freight product into 
Chicago at I don't know what the cost was, but it was it was exorbitant, right? When you look at flying a a couple of super sacks, a couple of tons of, of MCTP in. But again, it's it's a decision that we made internally to, you know, if we're gonna be a reliable supplier, it's a step that we're gonna have to take. Is there uh is there anything that's still, you know, it's gotten better, the shipping's better. You you talk about things are normalized. Is there anything that still is an outlier where, you know, maybe it's it's questionable, like it's good for now, but it could break anytime soon in terms of not having, you know, the, the pipeline drying up? You know, um, kind of think on the, the container side of it, occasionally you still hear some rumbling around that when you look at uh, what we call totes or that 275 gallon that code you buy in bulk. I think there's been some rumbling up there. Just what's the supply look like from that front? So when we're, you know, we're in a big LCO or even shipping some of our, our active, right, come in from totes. So the active may be in source, but we just, again, we don't have that vessel or container, container to put it in. You know, over water, again, over water, still logistics, still seem to be somewhat of a hiccup. Uh, I think it's getting better, but when you look at lead times, you know, 2017, 2018, where they are now, I think we're seeing some, some increased lead times on that front. I think it's gotta be really hard to, you know, balance all this with, you know, when you're talking about products that are already labeled in the market, at the same time, you know, your, your group as, as others, are sourcing materials for things that are experimental with the hope that it will become labeled and navigating the same hurdles. And then we're in a world where the process of getting something from, okay, we have the data, we know that this does what we want it to do in a reliable and repeatable way across a large geographic scale. You get to that point, the process from there to actually getting the label it's kind of unpredictable how long that would be, right? No, absolutely. So, um, well, take our time, right? I mean, that's our, our latest launch. It's now labeled, but you know, going through the, the registration process, two, maybe three 90 day extensions onto what was originally required, right? When you look at a roughly a, a nine month process turned into almost a year at the federal level. Um, and if you look at states, there's still a little more lead time at some of your states uh, on that front. Um, for sure, there's, yeah, definitely hurdles uh, on, on the registration front. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, I know for those listening who have been to campus and, and walked Brandon's plots or, or visited with me over wheat science plots, you know, you see a lot of experimental stuff that's numbered. Um, you know, it's it's easily a decade. I think that's a fair estimate from from getting a numbered product to you see it on the shelf available for purchase. Yeah, no, it's a, you know, we just had a conversation internally, right? Looking at one of our AIs that um, we looked at it this year and last year with Via Tennessee and if I can get it to market in 2031, 2032, I'd, I'd be thrilled, right? That's uh it's crazy to think about if, you know, for myself, you got a 
20 year, 25 year career with PBI Gordon eventually that, and I'm doing the math, I'm like, man, I'd be really thrilled if I could launch three new products in that time frame. <laughs> it's it's yeah. crazy when you think about it in that perspective. Um, yeah. But no, it is. It's just, uh, you know, when you look at the work that has to go in and try to um, solve dissipation, that side of it, but then taking that moving into the EPA. Well, and this is, a, you know, it's a and little what, bit of it. Oh, go ahead, Brandon. I was just going to say, Jeff, what's the, like, what's the current cost estimate for, from, you know, soup to nuts for a labeled product from experimental to introduction to the market? Is it 300 million now? Yeah, well, usually if you're a basic, um, yeah, absolutely. I think you're in that ballpark, right? If, when I look at PBI, we're, we're not a basic company. So we're, we're going to source right. an AI from somebody and, um, you know, you're sourcing an active ingredient once it's already gone through talks and all that, the other stuff, right? Yeah, we're sourcing it, you know, post discovery. So the the ability for you know these BASF uh, or Bayer, right, to, to manufacture, synthesize a molecule, I mean, huge expense on the front end of that to screen it. Um, is there activity there or not? So so we're getting it downstream from all of that, and what PBI is looking at then is you know, can we take it and register it? The, the process of registering a, a tech trade product in the U.S., if it's not been registered, I mean, you're looking at anywhere, I'd say eight to $10 million just, just for that. Hmm. So there's, there's some huge, uh, huge bills out there. Huge, it's a large sum of money that, that goes into that process. Um, well, and, 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 you know, for those listening that are unfamiliar, I mean, we all are, but you're also under a ever ticking patent clock, yeah. right? So then your ability to recoup that investment, every day it's not sold is, is one day lost to recoup the investment. So that's another reason why the, aside from all the stuff we've talked about with inflation and supply chain, like that's just another reason why the, the prices tend to, they don't go down. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, it's the, it's the crystal ball, right? If I know product has a fit right now, we can, we can look at it out there at the, the research station and say, man, this looks really good in these plots. And I'm looking 10 years down the road saying, okay, is it still going to be needed? Is, you know, what's, what is somebody else co-developing alongside of us, right? A, a competitor that, are they coming to market? Two years down the road or three years down the road where now i have to reevaluate it's just really a fit now it's a yeah. you know there's, there's a lot of uh crystal ball a lot of you know swag of man i, I think in 10 years this is going to be needed but it's still a bit of a roll of the dice well and to the to that point so one of the things that i think the supply chain thing has has done is it's forced uh particularly in the golf market for sure, but I think it's forced people across, you know, the various segments of our market to, to reevaluate how they're using, you know, not just products, but equipment and things like that. We've seen a huge push into autonomous uh, mowing technology right now because of the supply chain issues, you know, not because, but, but that's kind of, pushed people to consider it where maybe they wouldn't consider it before look i'm just going to renew my lease package and i'm going to be good to go where 
you know, now they're looking at, gosh, you know, I, I renew my lease package and I'm looking at, you know, a year, year and a half before I even get it. And I can go over here and buy this, you know, autonomous equipment right now and it's available and I can, you know, get this party started. When you guys are looking at those kinds of things changing in the market, how are you looking at what we need to change in terms of application technology and things like that to be able to uh, accommodate end users that are moving in that direction? No, absolutely. So, you know, one of our, you know, within PBA, we have some accelerated growth goals, right? And, and some of that's, Brandon, what you're hitting on that, that precision turf management is what we call it. And how do we want to play in that? Uh, but when you look at what I would say is a current formulation now is probably not going to fit the bill for some of these new devices coming to market. Um, I, I look at some of the work, I think, you know, Texas A&M is looking at that aerial drone application. I know uh, Dr. Askew there, Virginia Tech's done some of that, doing some of that work. And, and when you look at that, and you go to a, a aerial application, you know, some of the formulations we have, I, I know they're not going to work in that scenario. So what kind of, you know, drift reduction agents do you need to put in there? Um, is, is the packaging right, right? Is it really a two and a half gallon jug that you need when you look at that type of, of application? Do we need to get to a much more concentrated version? Um, now, it's, it's something that we definitely are looking at um and man i tell you the that precision turf market is changing so quickly um you see technology you know just year over year uh when you look at how quickly technology is moving in that market um and then trying to keep up with it from our formulator points uh, it's a challenge yeah for sure i mean you, you think uh one of one of the things that came up with a, a project that i've been working on recently is just thinking about like spray volumes, right? Like you, you, you think about a typical application on turf, you're at 44 or 88 gallons per acre of spray volume. You know, you look at an ag, you know, application volume, you're at, you know, 15 gallons per acre. And I think part of that has to do with the density of the canopy, right? Like, you know, right here, like, you're trying to hit all those plants where when you're working in a crop system where plants are planted 18, 19 inches apart, you know, anything that's hitting the ground is kind of wasted product. So you're trying to get that spray volume light enough that it hangs in the air and gets covered on those plants that are spaced apart. So that's part of the problem. But to that point, if you start using like an aerial application drone or a small autonomous uh, you know, mower type applicator that has some sort of boomless spray or something like that, that's going to completely change the mindset and how we go about applying some of these products. And we're going to have to optimize how those products get applied. And that's one of the questions I've always wondered about, you know, when we put a small plot out with a CO2 sprayer versus a you know, a, a 500 gallon tank that has an agitator and a centrifugal pump, what are the differences between those two applications, even though the application volumes might be similar and so on? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, like you said, a lot of like, LCO folks on here, and we see it when you go from a golf course type, you know, just conventional equipment, right? With a 
200 gallon spray rig to a uh, spray gun to a spray gun to your low volume applicator you just take a white clover for example right i mean when you look at that low volume applicator going over white clover that that dense canopy i think at times you you get good application to that upper canopy but then you don't you don't get that penetration down to that lower canopy so what seems like a, a miss is just we weren't moving product you know uniformly brandon to your point we weren't moving product uniformly over that entire target um no you know it's definitely something that you know when you look at the ais when you look at and, and credit to, to dr sanson here at pbi gordon on our formulation front what what co-formulants can go in there um, either to improve that that spread right across the leaf surface um, how can we change particle size to get kind of mitigate some of that drift movement risk as well all i think parts. i think we're going to have to do more of it too i mean all the points that brandon raised about the precision market are, are you know right on the money and then if you you know if you, if you really want to um, dig deep into some of the Endangered Species Act mitigations that are on the table as things go through re-reg, a lot of what's listed is about drift. And, you know, there's there's things there, I think, that are actionable for turf, and there's some things that maybe would be a little bit more difficult. But, you know, some of the low-hanging fruit stuff is is nozzle selection and, and droplet size and things that we just haven't really, I think, fully flushed out in turf like they've done in ag. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, whether, uh, EW formulated product is going to set up well for an air induction nozzle versus, a you know, a, a regular flat fan, you know, T-Jet 802XR, like who, that's something we got to figure out and, and there'll, there'll definitely be more of that. No, no, no doubt on that front. Um, you know, is there a, you mentioned kind of that EW, the SE front, so what does that look like? Uh, certain states regulations on, on VOCs, right? So you you cut out some of those petroleum solvents. But you know, our, our initial discussion this goes back to supply chain. You know, when, when PBI Gordon made the decision to go from your traditional EC type formulation to an EW or an SE, a lot of that was supply chain driven. Uh, when you look at the impact of you know hurricanes, and you look at the the Texas coast. We made that decision. So it was 2013-14. Seemed like Houston, you know, once a month was getting hit with a, a tropical storm or a hurricane. And we're seeing that impact on, on all the petroleum solvents that are going into our products. So that was a drive around, you know, why did we go to an EW or an SE? It's was supply chain driven. Um, you know, and then you look at it, Jim, from your front. When you talk about nozzle and you look at what does an EW look like coming out of, you know, your traditional flat fan nozzle compared to when you see, um, you know, what is your, you know, micron wise, less than 115 micron or something like that of your, your, your fines that are readily available to drift, right? So what does that impact have? And, and I think it was kind of a secondary benefit that when you went to these EWs and SCs, you saw less fines when you look at your, your traditional nozzles. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, for sure. Well, 
while we get close to our end here, what I'm going to do, I'm going to see if I can figure out how to make the tech work because I already screwed it up once today. Um, and I'm going to put this up for our golf course superintendent uh, friends in attendance. This is your GCSAA uh, event approval code for today. Today's date is September 5th. Uh, your event approval code is right here. Um, I won't read that out because that's a mouthful. Uh, do know that if you are watching this archived uh, on YouTube and you log this into the GCSAA event website, you want to make sure to list today's event date, not the date that you watched the recorded session. And then again, this has absolutely nothing to do with pesticide credits. I know there's always confusion uh, I think every episode we've ever done, people get confused about the GCSAA uh, piece versus the state pesticide accredit accreditation piece. And there's no linkage there. This has nothing to do um, with pesticide credits at all. So I guess to, to you know, kind of wrap things up, Jeff, is there anything uh, anything we missed we didn't cover? I mean, this kind of reminds me a little bit like the, the turf conference session where this was first and foremost on everybody's mind. And we talked about it. We, we flushed it out. And then you kind of get to a point where you're like, I don't know how much there's left to talk about. <laughs> no, you know, from a, like I said, I think from a high level, I guess maybe it's a put that end user and distribution kind of more at ease. Of, you know, from my perspective, I look at supply chain. I really think you're seeing a, a leveling off. Um, on that front, and, and I think we even picked up on some of that internally. When you when you look at you know our distribution partners, there was a point in time where I think if you were a distribution partner, if, if we had a product, you were buying it just because there, there was that uncertainty of is it going to be in stock three months down the road, five months down the road. Um, so I think even on that distribution side, you, you're seeing a kind of a course correction coming out of COVID where. You know, we're seeing some of our distribution distribution partners that would carry 130, 140 days of inventory. And you're now seeing that scale back a little bit to where it was pre-COVID, where you're looking at 60 days, 90 days worth of, of inventory. Um, so that's a good sign, I think, when you, when you look at that across the board, uh, to kind of have that course correction, get back to where we, we were coming out of or going into COVID. Yeah, I mean, I know that I've heard of, some chatter about project shortages here and there for different AIs from different companies. And, and like you said, I mean, I, the chatter was louder probably in May than it is right now. And, and hopefully that means we're past it and everything is normalized because, you know, we're, we're going to get into an EOP season where there's going to be a lot of ordering here. Um, it's probably, I don't know the details of all of it from every company, but my sense is some have already started. Uh, yeah, they're coming out now. They're coming out now. I know um, internally our sales group is they've they've started having those conversations with, with partners on on our green dividends. Um, so it's it's going to go yeah through September October into November really those those three months will be very significant for for early order. So the last question I have for you before we wrap, I'm gonna I, I we've had two pathologists on this summer on Turf Tuesdays and we asked this question to them. Um, and it was interesting. So I'm going to ask this question to you. What is your Mount Rushmore of turf grass herbicides? 
You can do AIs, not product names, just just herbicidal active ingredients, your Mount Rushmore. Speaking of what do I wish I had or what? Just just kind of the four most consequential turf grass herbicides. Four most consequential turf grass herbicides. Okay. It could be yours or somebody else's just that affected the industry in, in a way that's memorable. So when I look at PBI Gordon, 80% of our portfolio has either 2,4-D, Dicamba, or MCPP. Um, so so you're contractually are- obligated to say some sort of auction group that, four. That would be like on the face of, <laughs> yeah. of Mount Rushmore, it would be the three yeah, molecules. Be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, 2,4-D, right? 2,4-D is huge. And when I look mm-hmm. at that Mount Rushmore, you look at the cost of 2,4-D and what it brings to this market, um, that's huge, right? That's that's significant. Um, Mount Rushmore, I would throw glyphosate in there. I know it's gone under mm-hmm. pressure, but I'll tell you what, when you look at what, again, what that AI brings um, and you're seeing the ramifications of it, we're, we're seeing it. PBI Gordon, we had to take a barrier product that had glyphosate mm-hmm. and azapir and replace it with five different AIs. I mean, that's, yeah. um, you know, second, third one, I would probably throw out there is something from the the ALS chemistry when you look at, at grassy weed control, mm-hmm. without a doubt. And then the the fourth, boy, I tell you, it's it's got to be a free, um, whether it's a, a CBI or a mitosis. Um, man, take your pick on that free. Um, yeah. I, Good. Yeah. As you say, it gets interesting when yeah. you start looking at like I, use patterns and, and it's 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 interesting. I don't know. If I was gonna throw out one, it's you know, probably the, the mitosis inhibitor, right? When you look at, at mm-hmm. price and value and the spectrum of what they, they provide, um, and the longevity that they've had would probably yeah. be the, the fourth if I'm not rush more. Yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. I'm sure at some point where I'm least expecting it, you'll ask me the same question. And I look wow. forward to that. <laughs> oh, that was a, man, that was a good question. That was a, <laughs> but uh, I really I appreciate you coming on, Jeff. It's always fun to to talk with you and the, the PBI Gordon team. So thanks again for your time. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I appreciate it, Jim and, and Brandon. Like I said, I mean, one, I, I know this without saying, I mean, PBI Gordon and a lot of uh, folks in this industry wouldn't be where we are without Tennessee and, and the other universities out there. I mean, just some really good work um, on your behalf, but all of the, the folks out there at the academic level. It's, it makes our job easier, um, without a doubt. So thanks for having me. And yeah, appreciate it and, and, and looking forward to the, the next episode, hopefully. Yeah, next yeah. Ne- our next uh, episode will be First Tuesday in October, I uh, guess it'll be Casey Reynolds with TPI, and uh, he's going to talk about the sod checkoff and give us an update on the status of that and where it's headed and what it could do for the industry and um, all things sod. So until then, uh, hope everyone enjoys the rest of their day, and we will see you in October.